If I were to distill the four ingredients of writing and the four reasons people come for writing coaching, it starts like this. Memory, imagination, observation, questions about the world and ourselves in it. We come to the blank page to work stuff out and in doing so to connect. I want this podcast to honour and explore that with a different writer sometimes more than one writer, and sometimes more than one genre, each episode. We'll be talking about the memory, the observation, the imagination that joins the bits together, or the questions about the world and ourselves that led those writers to go on those journeys. At the end of that discussion, there'll be a writing exercise and a theme or question that is relevant to that, that says now you, you lead. It's a place to exercise your memory, your imagination and your sense of your right to those things. Just like the physical gym, if you turn up once a year (laughs) then the differences don't happen quite as quickly but if you bring in good writing habits every day, at least every week, regularly in your life then you do see the difference. And the writing confidence doesn't feel like confidence. It feels like focus. It feels like interest. It feels like curiosity. I'm Rachel Knightley. Welcome to the Writer's Gym. One of the basic realities of my childhood was the guitar. My mother is a guitarist. She used to play in restaurants. One of my earliest memories of the guitar are when she and I came back to England from California where I was born and she had a guitar tutor called Richard Wright. He was in a band called Latin Quarter and for me as a kid that was perfectly normal. You went to your friend Rachel and Bridget's house and your mum went upstairs to have her guitar lesson and you played and did whatever small children did at that point and then the adults would come back and you'd talk to them. And the music of Latin Quarter was absolutely basic to me growing up. And I think it's the reason why memoir for me and fiction for me blend so beautifully. And why I never did that. Is it all right? Is it all right to use everything and mix them and learn to do that? Because the work of Mike Jones in Latin Quarter, the songs that are political and personal, it's all absolutely the same thing. And his passions and his beliefs politically and personally taught me a huge amount about writing. Hello Mike, thanks so much for coming to talk to me, this is really lovely. Has it been a while since you were interviewed or asked about things like this? That's a good question. Uh, Do you know about that Latin Quarter podcast? Well I can send you a link to it, I mean that's six episodes and I didn't take part in it, I, I mean I've got very mixed feelings about Latin Quarter these days. I probably haven't talked about Latin Quarter for, for a long time. I can't remember the last time it would have been, you know. Mm. I'm intrigued. I mean, what, mm. what's, what's your particular interest in? Okay, I turned up in England in 1980. Oh, gosh, um, I was two. So um, 1984, 85. And my mum's a classical guitarist. And she found oh. Richard Wright as her teacher. So. Oh, yeah. My sort of early memories of music, really, 
involve my mum and her friends and the things that she did. So when she had a guitar lesson at Richard's house, I was brought along and I played with his daughters, with the other Rachel and Bridget. And we, we were, you know, Bridget was a baby. We were tiny. So I was aware of Latin Quarter and the whole thing felt very like it was mine because my friends wouldn't know about it. So it was in a place in my head that a lot of the music I was exposed to wasn't it. I I felt like it operated on some sort of more personal level. And I do remember seeing the CDs at a friend's house several years later and there was a certain feeling of that's mine. (laughs) Like, what's that? How dare you? That's mine. What's that doing there? (laughs) It was that. And I think for me, although I knew I wanted to write stories, the idea that writing music was also writing that you could in any way put it in the same category of the universe didn't really occur to me then and if I'm honest I think I still feel like that because it was I was very lazy with music as a child and I'm I'm now a beginner guitarist and I'm doing things but it was very much outside my comfort zone so I think for me there was something quite magical and different about it when it was songs rather than prose or mm. poetry or anything else which you know, rationally makes no sense whatsoever because lyrics are absolutely poetry. And, you know, it's it wasn't a rational thing. It was just that was how it felt at the time. And that was how it came to happen. I did go and sit with Rachel at a recording session once. And it was when Blair Cunningham was drumming. And that would have been, I mean, you'll probably know better than me, but this was all a very long time ago now. That would be in the 90s sometime, wouldn't it? Yeah was definitely sometime mm. in the 90s and I hadn't left school so I'm guessing pre-98 but that was yeah, my introduction yeah yeah, yeah yeah that could have been either the um the bringing Rosa home album probably because yeah. they recorded long pig and bringing Rosa home they recorded both of those in Richard's house I think and I was quite distanced from it then not so much in terms of my commitment as a writer but my life was turned upside down when when we lost our record deal I mean, absolutely turned upside down. Can you hear when you're talking, there's a sort of noise. Is that happening for you? <laughs> no, it's, it's, I think it's urine. I haven't got anything here. Oh, that's a shame. Although, okay. One of my students said the other day, I, I asked me yesterday, did I have a dog? Because they could hear a dog breathing. I said, well, no, I'm not a dog. That was, that, that was somewhere else, mind you, I must say. So have you still got it? Have you still got the yeah, it's it's Yeah, it's going, but, oh, it stopped. Oh, good. And it starts when you talk. Oh, dear. Okay. When Lightning Quarter lost its record deal, it was an enormous personal watershed for me. And that's, it's over 30 years ago now, but it completely changed the course of my life. And in a way, I'm still, I'm still in flight. I want to say flight, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I was living in North Wales at the time. And... We'd been to Los Angeles and made the third album, Swimming Against the Stream. And Steve and I had, had, had gone off and done promotion for it. So we'd been to Sweden. Can't remember where else, where else we'd been. And I was expecting then the next album cycle to be initiated. So that means I get a, a certain percentage of the publishing advance and a certain percentage of the recording advance. And that by that time would have come to a lot of money. It would have been the fourth album. And one of the great ironies of Latin Quarter is that my best 
friend was our manager, became our manager. So this is somebody I'd known since I was seven years old, you know. So the telephone goes and I pick it up and he gives me the news. He said, RCA have dropped us. So no money is going to come in. And at that time, I'd done all the things that, that are most expensive in life. I was then with my, with my former partner. We bought a house, we had a baby. She bought a new car and we'd been on holiday to Italy and I'd maxed out my credit cards. So I had absolutely no money. And I was expecting a, a large amount of money to come in. So, and I lived in a very small town because she got a job in the, had a job in the health service and had moved, we, we moved from Liverpool. I'm, I'm in Liverpool now, but we'd moved. So I went to the shop as I would do every morning and I bought a pint of milk and a, and a loaf of bread and a newspaper. And I handed over what was then my last five pound note. It was suddenly my last five pound note. So of course I got a handful of change. I was in a state of absolute shock. It wasn't, well, it, it, was, it was the news. But I mean, the brute reality of that news was I was down to, I don't know how much, you know, let's say three pound 50. And I looked at it and I thought, my God, that's all the money I've got in the world. And I put it in my pocket. And then I looked at the newspaper at my horoscope to see whether the day would get any better. You know, it took 10 years from that day for, for me to get the job I have now. 10 years. So it was, a dec it was a decade of complete crisis. And everything in my life changed as a result of that moment. So, so when I listened to the podcast... And, you know, and, and they're full of praise for me. I mean, Richard especially is an enormous fan of mine, but so, so are the others, you know. And I, and I wasn't exactly angry about them. I mean, there was anger in there. It wasn't exactly anger. It was, this has nothing to do with my life. And yet it had everything to do with my life because I put absolutely everything into what I wrote. I wasn't a casual writer. I set my, you know, I, 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 I really committed to the writing. And, and, and you know, they're not even ironies. There's some, some more, something more toxic than an irony. But we, 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 we were signed by German RCA and then we, we just did a fill-in album for them which did nothing and we got dropped by them. And then we were signed by a German independent label and we made the album Long Pig. And in many ways, that's the best writing I ever did. Um, I was really, really proud of everything I'd written on, on, on that album. And we went to Germany to promote it, and, and the band went. But now, do you know, I can't remember, maybe Blake Cunningham was, was in that band. And we met Vera Branders, who was, it was her record label. And, and I thought, right, great, we're just about to start again. Obviously, we'd slid down, but I mean, you know, we've still done a few snakes, but we're, we're still in the game. And we go to her office and she said, well, she said, it's, it's sold 10,000 and that's it. You know, it's, it's not big enough to be a success, not small enough. To be... And I thought, my God, it's already, this is already over. You know, this hasn't even begun. I felt we were just beginning again with a new lineup and a new album. And for that person, it was already over. And the shocks, I mean, I teach this now, and I've been teaching this for a long time. And one of the things I try to prepare students for, but you can't really, is just the emotional gravity of being involved in any kind of creative, um, I hate to say business, creative endeavor. Let's, let's sanitize it and call it an endeavor rather than a business. But the, uh, the, uh, the, um, the emotional demands my God, I, I find them enormous. I, you can hear, you know, even now speaking to you, it, it isn't because I haven't spoken about this for a long time. I speak about this a, a lot, quite, quite honestly, I suppose, with, you know, 
by wife and with, with other people. And that's how I experience it as an in, enormous emotional burden and, and, a, and a, you know, and an experience. And one that I've, I've never really come to terms with. And I've, I've been working in this job a lot. I mean, it'll be my 25th year next year, at which point I'll retire. And, and I enjoy it. And, you know, I mean, so many amazing things have happened to me the last five or six years. I've got this enormous Beatles connection now, which I never expected to have, you know. But I still feel in a state of shock from nothing quarter, you know. So there you go. There is so many directions I could go in right now. In terms of my coaches and my university students exploring the political and the personal motivation for writing a song, I'd love to ask you how similar the approach, the drive is and mm. how that works for you. One of the things I, I do at the moment is I teach on a Beatles MA. It's called Beatles Heritage and Industry. So what I'm looking at is the fact that Liverpool has struggled to come to terms with the fact that the Beatles came from Liverpool. So now Liverpool kind of embraces the Beatles, but at one time they really they were really resistant to the Beatles. But it's not just that. It's that that the way I've, I've, I've approached it is to say there were two breakups. Liverpool broke up as an important wealthy port from, I would say, the beginning of the First World War onwards. Some people would date it from the end of the Second World War. But nonetheless, this was the second city of empire. There were more millionaires in, in Liverpool in the 1790s than there were in London. Uh, and, you know, the architecture of Liverpool, I mean, the, the Luftwaffe did for a lot of it. But, I mean, this is an incredibly impressive city that, it's, that has fallen in on itself. Half the population is gone. It's gone down from 800,000 to 400,000. And it's, you know, the, 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 the wealthiest people in Liverpool are footballers, solicitors and drug dealers. I'm part of a middle class, but I mean, everybody else is, is really, really, you know. Therefore, it, it's so consumed with its own self-identity and image and its breakup and the enormity of it, that why the hell would it ever commemorate the Beatles? So it's, it's been a 50-year process 40, 50 year process to get Liverpool. Because what, what I say to the students is, look, we, we can't go into the past. We can't access the past. All we can do is tell stories about it. Something that just really strikes me about your answer to that question when I was saying personal or political, mm. your personality and your personal history means that those two are very deeply... Inseparable, inseparable. very mm. inseparable. I think about all my choices actually, and, and, I, and I weigh them and I try to balance them. And is this a right decision or a wrong decision? And it's always within a political frame of reference. And the right difference. to your own voice is something that when teaching memoir, but actually when teaching everything else as well, is something that, that I, I try to prioritise because we, we were looking at Model Sun the other day. And hmm. the thing that a lot of the exercises that I do are around is noticing when one is censoring oneself as in, oh, I can't possibly say that it would hurt so-and-so, or I can't yeah, yeah. possibly do this because somebody else would disagree with me. And mm. different personalities respond to this in different ways. Now, if you are somebody who goes, do you know what, this is my story, I'm telling it, that's going to mm. be less of a problem. But if you are somebody who doesn't quite have that circuitry in the same way, then doing the conscious process of, okay, what are my blocks? And can I just notice myself when those come along and do it anyway? I was using Model Son to talk to talk about, you know, if the father 
were writing the story between them. Is it going to be identical? No, it's not. Mm. Well, unless, mm. you know, I don't know. But mm. um, we're mm. going to go with the possibility that no, it's not. The father's going to see it completely differently. Does that make that story any less true? No. In fact, in a mm. way, it shows quite how true that story is because it is that, that lack of empathy or, or of connection to another person Absolutely. that creates that problem. So that, mm. that's sort of where, where I'm thinking pers personal stories. Is that something you ever struggled with or was it more a case of I can tell my story or...? Well, well, it's, it's brilliant that, 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 that you should have identified model son because I was only thinking about it the other day and I've written something. I was so obviously angry about my relationship with my father that maybe had I been a painter, I would have painted a room red from the inside, you know. But what I did, and I, and I felt not, not inauthentic or dishonest, but very, very close to it is, and I say it in the article, that, that you know, however tortured these feelings were, I made sure I wrote three choruses, uh, three verses, a chorus and a middle eight, you know. Exactly. So you draw on your own experience and your own observations. I said, but maybe there's a cut-off cut limit, you know, maybe there's a point at which you don't expose, self-expose, you know. And I played the model son, and I just got this enormous round of applause at the end of it. I'm only playing it, playing the wreck. I showed them the lyric, but but they they I think what they were applauding. Well, somebody said they were applauding the sliding bass line as well. Who knows? But you know, what what's the fact that 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 ultimately you know that song's honest. You know, and and I said to them, I said in that lyric, I said, look, I got onto that middle eight, and you know, so so we've so we we've danced it down the the decades, mother, father, son, and squaw. And I said, I, I, you know, I was in a feminist organization and big, one of the things about Big Flame was, it was, a, it was led by feminists in, in, in many ways. And I said, I had to, you know, I had restless nights about whether I could use that term or not, because it's so disparaging. But in the end, it seemed to be completely right. See, if you can see this, I write on my walls, I'm not crazy. It's just that wow. um, I use these plastic sheets. Here we go, show you. I use these things. Wow. So it's a roll of plastic sheets which take whiteboard markers. I have to see my ideas, right? So I put them on the wall and then I write. And I've written down here, right, it says there, I don't, it says Beatles Dickie Henderson and then it says, can you see that? Yeah. Trying, right? Yeah. It says novelty versus substance. Substance is not the right word. I forgot as I was thinking about this. Masculinity managed by suppression and caricature. Management of masculinity by humour. And you could see how, how much they were kind of suppressing their need to be you know, recognized, celebrated as, as men, as these kind of, you know, these rat pack figures. And Dickie Henderson was the person who followed the Beatles on stage at the Royal Command performance, when John Lennon says, you know, and those of you, you rattle know, your jewelry, you rattle your jewelry, right? Dickie Henderson comes on and he makes this comment, and I can't remember it verbatim, but, I, but I've, I've, I've cut and pasted it. Which is bit, and he says frightening. That was frightening, and 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 he meant it because he knew his time was over, right? The Beatles are a completely new approach to masculinity. You got long hair, 
you can admit weakness you, you're not tough you're not you're not going to fight anybody you sing like girls but one of the strengths of the beatles is a you know three-part harmony they were they weren't afraid you know they, they were copying girl group songs say covering them baby it's you and you know please mr postman and and, and whatever else and that kind of that style of masculinity almost you know began to vanish overnight well my father was heavily invested in that and then i realized that he, he loved billy dainty doing this and he used to call it funny marching and then it dawned on me that all those generations up to mine as males would have been in the army or the armed forces they were not only was there national service because of the empire britain was fighting wars continuously for 200 years and if you were working class you you'd end up you were cannon fodder and, and, and people kind of accepted, you know, it was internalized. It's not that the Beatles knew they were representing that, but, but I experienced a change in masculinity, right? And one of the reasons I had such tension with my father was that all my father did, all he wanted me to do was fight or be able to fight from, you know, from the earliest. When I was two years old, he'd be, you know, forming my hands into fists and telling me, you know, and, and, and how to stand and, you know, because he was into boxing and so on. And all it meant to me was that I feared everybody outside my front door because the message coming from my father was, you step outside there, somebody's going to, you know, kick your head in. So you've got to be, you've got to be ready for them. I mean, what a message to send to a kid. You're essentially you're describing trauma cycles, aren't you? That it, it's it's social so. yeah. that yeah. we we pass on what we think are survival mechanisms when really yes. it's the survival mechanisms that causes the problem. As indeed Absolutely. was the truth of empire, we were yes. causing the problems. You mentioned that sort of internal battle around the word squaw from a writing point of view, and I think this, and I'm I'm increasingly sure this is this is at some level everybody that there is there is some level of internal struggle about it's my story and my job is to tell my story as authentically as I am capable of doing. But at mm. the same time, there there are levels of self-censoring. So what was your process of sort of saying to yourself, what am I trying to say? I've tried to think about this. I've never tried to write about it. So I haven't re really kind of, you know, ex identified all of the moving parts. But ultimately, I would say all the songs I wrote came from a single observation. And what happens is that they are, they are densely packed. And what I tried to do would, would, would be to open them up. And sometimes you'd open them up and they, they, they would just fall away. They, they, it was insufficient content. And sometimes they'd open up and they'd tell you what they were. Thank you very much. This is what you need to write now. And sometimes you'd open up and think, oh, my God, I mean, it's such a good idea, but, you know, where, where do I go? So some things kind of happened comparatively quickly and other things took a long time. I, I mean, I've got some examples of songs that took two or three years to finish, song lyrics, and and oh, then they were songs because I sang them to melodies in my own head. That's how I structured them. But And, and some that... I, I this thing comes and I immediately start. But one of my auntie's ones, um, when she uh, she worked in the post office at the end of the 1940s, and um, one of the you know phenomena of the Second World War here was that young 
British girls married American servicemen and went off to the USA. You imagine how excited the USA would have appeared because they don't they'd only seen it in the movies. I mean, you know, I, I got a lot of this from my mother. You know, she was a big, big movie fan. You know, and so this this young woman came into the post office. My my, my auntie's behind the counter. She'd only been away six months, and she had an American accent. And she came, and then she's from South Wales, you know. And she comes up to, to my auntie and says, "Hey, honey, give me an email sticker, right?" It's like, what? Are you saying, no, give me an email sticker. So when my auntie told me this story, I, I wrote, "Hey, Mister, you know, give me an email sticker." That's a lot of water to cross, but they tell me blood is thicker. Um, all that the movie spills supposed to make us thrill. Her face betrayed no trace of pain, no flicker. I just wrote it in, in you know, I just wrote it in one block. So, so that became a song called Across the Atlantic. And then I, I, I'm from that first verse. I had to keep it going, which was basically that that you know, that way of life is a, is an illusion, you know. But the illusion is so strongly reinforced by the images that that entertain us that that we you know we are led to value. That's where that came from. So I think they all came from individual observations, turns of phrase, particular, I mean, one of my, it might be the same auntie, actually, because I used to talk to her on the phone. And she'd been speaking to my auntie Cora, my auntie Cora had said, Is that, that the Cora? Yeah, Is yeah. that the Cora? Was, yeah, yeah, there was snow in the wind. So I wrote, it's a snow wind. She's felt the blow, you know, and I wrote that really consistently it didn't it didn't write itself nothing writes itself that, that that's a you know misleading turn of phrase but the emotional power of it i mean i wrote about i wrote about my grandmother's life it was my aunt auntie cora my aunt cora was, was younger than my own grandmother and i knew my grandmother's life because you know the only reason i'm here is because my my, my father made my mother pregnant when she was 20 or something when they went so they had to get married and therefore we had to live with my grandmother because you know they weren't they didn't have anything to any so, anywhere to live so the facts the facts of the life were grandmother and the name yeah, was yeah. aunt and blended. yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's, it's, my, my, this is a terrible thing one time i was doing a songwriting class and i was talking about cora and i said and there were older people in the room they weren't you know and I said, well, the reason I use Cora is partly because it came from my auntie Cora. And I said also, but, but also because my, my grandmother's name was Gertrude and it's not really good for a pop song. And this woman said, but my name is Gertrude. It was like, oh, God. <laughs> but it's, there are artistic truths and then there are literal truths. And quite often the emotional truth is a lot more used to people than the literal truth. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Gertrude and the snow wind. Yeah. Suddenly sounds like a fart joke. Whereas Cora yeah. and the snow wind. I know lifts and be, and yeah. becomes a sort of human human condition you don't get that with the name gertrude and that's no that's no fault yeah. of any gertrude it's just a tr no, no. And, and, and and it also shows that in you know in terms of what authenticity or being being true to yourself then there are lines in the road you know and and, and you know the form actually needs some kind of you know massaging in order for it to deliver what you are trying to deliver through it, you know? Um, something that I don't know why I think this, and therefore was probably something that Richard said to my mum 25 years ago, <laughs> that may or may not be true, 
uh, because that is where I got most of my information from, was um, that Donovan's Doorway was a novel or a novel in progress, or is that no? No, no. What what was I'd, going on there? I, 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 had a, I had a huge row with my partner. I stormed out of the flat, and I didn't live very far away from from Anfield. You know where where, where Liverpool play. Liverpool were playing York City in the League Cup. I remember it really vividly. I'm really pissed off. I'm stalking along. It's February, so it's already dark. It's cold. It's miserable. Police in Liverpool, in those days, you used to see police far more visibly than you do now. They always used to be in twos because Liverpool was a very violent city, and everybody from sergeants upwards carried horse batons. So one of the things about you know about British police was you, they carried truncheons. They weren't you know the, the only arm they had. They, they had, didn't have guns, and you never saw them. But in Liverpool, you saw these big sticks. It was like I've got a big stick, you know. I mean, it was, it's a different city from, from from anywhere else. You didn't see, even see that in London. So there's a policeman in a doorway, you know, with, with his kind of like his, his his stick behind him. You know, they had various positions to to hold them. And and there, there's a horrible billboard, and, and and on the billboard there's a heart with Mick and Caroline written on it. And and you know, the the, the images are just the images that are announcing themselves as I'm walking down the street. So I watched the match. And and came back and started writing all those things down, and they just organised themselves into a lyric, you know. And was Mick, Mick and Caroline was actually written? Actually written on a billboard that I passed. Two hearts entwined, oh. Mick and Caroline, on a poster that says "Help the Poor." Uh, it might have been a charity poster, it might be an Oxfam poster, mm. and there it was. And there was something so in, something so perfect about it because. If, let, let's say, maybe I'm embroidering this, but let's say it was an Action for Children or Action Aid poster, and yet you hear two young people declaring their love for each other on it. So actually, you know, taking taking over the site. I, I don't know. I, I think it was that. such a powerful connection. And then to my right, here's the state. Here's a figure of authority. And you know they've got authority because they've got a big stick in their hand. You know, so if you step out of line, I'm going to hit you with this. Gosh. And and it was that it, it, I suppose that's what it was. You, you, you know, here are people in the world who haven't got anything, and we need to support them. Here are young people trying to you know embrace life and live life and and see its possibilities. And there's somebody over there who's telling you what the limits are. You know, here are the limits to this. It was just a vignette, and and you know I was pissed off, and I thought, well, was, <laughs> I didn't think consciously, but I must have felt. I can feel it inside. It's like you know. Yeah. Here's a summary of why I'm pissed off. You know, it, you know, life doesn't actually, you know, to 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 realise its promise. My God, it's complex. You know, and that relationship with anger is so important because where it can be fuel, what you're describing is seeing that change needs to be made and expressing it. Ironically, mm. the opposite of what Empire would have told you to do, stiff up a lip and mm. shut up, you know, that's masculinity. But what mm. I was thinking was the the opposite of the opposite reaction to that, which I'm sorry to say does often get really gendered in the people that I speak to, is the idea that anger is something that is unseemly and you have to control and makes you sound ungrateful and all of that nonsense. Mm. And I think with a mm. lot of the writers that I'm speaking to, getting around that is a huge deal to be able to mm. access that anger and use it as fuel mm. for creativity for change 
if, if, if you call it energy, I mean, I, very often I, I don't, I don't like to, to sanitize things or, 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 or to, you know, to, to create buzzwords, but it, it is an energy. I mean, you know, what's that PIL song? You know, John, John Lydon, anger is an energy. You know, if you think of it as an energy, and don't let it become, you know, the cul-de-sac that anger is, because anger is an absolute cul-de-sac. No, nobody wins, do they? You know, people just get hurt. So if if people can tap what flows inside them without allowing that flow to take a negative form, if you can maintain that balance, then that's maybe when you produce, you know? I speak to a lot of people who, my feelings, have have every right to be able to express what their experience with their parents or their family or their situation of, of lovers, whatever, one kind or another, that that storyline, if you will, is in there. But they are so attuned to the reasons why they think they don't have a, or, or they feel like they shouldn't have a right to say it. What would you say to people who are finding it difficult to use the material they have but the, but the point is i haven't done it you know I, i've written enormous numbers of songs but the headspace i occupied while i did that was an illusory one i wanted there to be progressive social change which i thought was coming you know because mark says it's going to happen and it doesn't so i'm not putting myself down but I know that they were illusory. So in my remaining time, there are two ways in which I want to go, two ways, two forms in which I want to express myself. One, I think I really need to settle my score with philosophy. So part of me wants to do that, and this part of me thinks I should write poetry. And I feel absolutely unable to write poetry. I don't think I'm clever enough. I don't think I'm intelligent enough. I don't think I process things clearly enough to do it. I was listening to some, Seamus Heaney, a few nights ago, right? I got the first, there are three volumes. I was lying there thinking, I'm not as clever as this guy. I'll never be able to do this. And if I start writing poetry, people are just going to think, I'm crap, and then I'm going to have to internalize that. And I'm going to feel terrible, and I haven't got many years left. You know what I mean? So I'm not as brave as maybe you think I am, or as clear as maybe you think I am about what I do. Or, just as a as a devil's advocate, yeah, there are people out there, let us say, who have written poetry, but as 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 I was experiencing, you know, look at songwriting. Oh, I couldn't possibly do that. That's a whole other thing because there is a wheel mm. that we're all standing somewhere on, not just in mm. writing, but in everything. And we're doing, oh, well, this is just me. I've done this for years. But what that person's doing over there, that's real, you know, yeah, yeah. art. And yeah. the yeah. only way that that changes, and, and, and it's sort of me answering my own question in a way, I suppose, but the only way the fear of or, or the... um the way you look at something changes is by walking into it, doing it and going, oh, look, I'm still me and the world is still the world. And yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, no, I you hear know, that. 
And yeah, I yeah. just, I so hope you do it because <laughs> I would look at something like the way, the way that you write and how the entire personality and world is just, is just so confidently realized and everything feels so absolutely real that even when I read back lyrics and I think actually I felt like I understood that for years and I've just realized I didn't because I've walked into the world and I have the confidence in the world. And it's the same with mm. prose. You can, you can do mm. that when somebody knows what they're doing. And there mm. is absolutely no way on earth that you couldn't do poetry if you decided that you were stepping through that door. Well, well, yeah. And, and, and the thing is, I know that, you know, now I've, I've made this decision, I will retire. And part of me has kind of already begun to prepare myself for stepping, stepping through that door. There's a woman on the staff here in English uh, who's a professor of poetry, and she invited me to one of her classes, and I took the class through Blameless. Do you know the song Blameless? Well, oh, from... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Inside <laughs> Out, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I really like Blameless, you know, because I... And, and oddly enough, Steve doesn't like singing it. Isn't that bizarre? Why? But, um, <laughs> Which I know is not the point right now, but now I just have to ask why. Yeah, well, I, he hasn't explained it, but for some oh. reason he doesn't like it. I don't know why. And I really do. He's wrong. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Uh, well, I think he's wrong as well. He's wrong. So what I, so, so what I do, did was I took them through the writing um, of Blameless. And that came from... It's just a single observation, you know, I, as before, and I was with my then then partner and we were in her parents' house and there was this terrible thing on the television with poor Mae West. She, you know, she was like 95 at this point and they get her to walk down a stairway and her hair is blonde and, you know, she's in this kind of tight-fitting ball gun and it was just like, come on, she doesn't have to pretend she's 25. Give her a break, you know. So undignified, isn't there another way of celebrating that, you know? Name to be renamed, I, because that, I mean, I knew that song years before I changed my name, years mm. before the events that caused me to change my surname occurred. Mm. But it's, they're ideas in the world and, and it gives, it, it, it is a description of a person. And actually, when I think my mum talked to me about that song when I first heard them, I think she got the wrong actress because I think she told me it was somebody else. But so at some level, well, there's a, yeah, there's a confusion in there about actresses. But I do something naughty at the end, which I've always regretted. We're that, not in Kansas uh, anymore. I was all about Judy Garland. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, but, but, but over your shoulder goes one kid that could have been you a song is actually a reference to uh, a British actress from the from the 1930s. So again, it's it's the emotional truth over the literal truth. It's it's something yeah, that you yeah. you at some level have spotted or experienced in the world, possibly around actresses, possibly around loads of people, mm. and it's expressing that. So mm. I, I so the, the tangent that I went went right away from there was you you said that that maybe you weren't as brave as I thought you were, and mm. I would argue mm. it isn't that. I'd argue that we we all have areas where for whatever reason they're more more accessible but it remains terrifying to walk through that door so when I've got some mm. person that I'm talking to who's saying oh I can't or thinking I can't possibly write about my mother father this thing that thing mm. Mm. you know you were able to do that but then there are other things that are that scary so I guess as as writers it's finding out which blocks we're sitting mm. with and and just becoming 
becoming conscious of that. You know, I, I talk about bird spotting that, you know, if I see a robin go past the window, I don't go, what does that say about me? I just go, oh, it's a robin. So if I see right, if I see a block of me, it's like, mm. oh, interesting information, data, give it a comfortable seat, get on with what I'm doing, because, you know, it's mm. those blocks, they're going to be there. What's clear here is that objectively, it's no less brilliant what you do just because you look at what somebody else does and goes, that's brilliant too. You know, yeah, it possibly mm, is, mm, but that's mm. not a reason not to walk through that door. When I wrote a, a book on creative writing, one of one of the central things in that was trying to be, to, to abandon, is this interesting? And go for, am I interested? And get yourself through yeah. that. Because that yeah, is yeah. how to stay authentic rather than, mm -hmm. oh my God, the audience that doesn't exist yet might not like this thing that doesn't exist yet. And yeah, just yeah, paralyze yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's really well put. That's really well put. I I, I do take that. There'll be one line in, in, in TSL, you know, one line in Seamus Heaney. I think, oh my God, you know, how big is that? How much weight is there in that? You know, let alone the thing, the thing as a whole. And, just and, just and as long as long as that doesn't make you then go, it's all or nothing. That for every T. S. Eliot, there's also yeah. you. Yeah. You know yeah, that yeah, that yeah. that does that does not yeah. devalue T. S. Eliot being T. S. Eliot does not devalue you being you. And it's so so important to remember that we all stand in this enormous circle, looking at each other, going, "Wow, that's amazing." You know, it, it's and you just you have to trust that that what you see there, I see in things you've done and that everybody sees, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you have yeah, to trust that yeah. process. Mm. But, but you, you know, it's interesting, you, know, so, you know, it's a very, very interesting conversation for me because it's about me. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, when I did all that writing, I mean, I, I wrote for, 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 for a very long time. I mean, there are songs that are not Latin Quarter songs. Because the point is, you know, that, that it's that point of hope. I don't even remember now whose quote it was, but there should always be hope in, 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 in what you write. There's always got to be a point at which, you know, you empower people. Absolutely. Thank you okay. so much. Take care. Lovely to meet you. We'll Take see care. you again next week. Really lovely Cheers. to meet you. Today's memoir exercise takes inspiration from how Mike mixed different real characters different feelings he had about real characters in the song Blameless. We talked about how it was different actresses. I'd like you to mix people that represent something for you in your life. One of mine in my book that has not been announced yet but will be soon puts three mentor teacher figures together in one character and none of them I'd say are more the inspiration for that person than any other, but none of them are absent from it, even if only I ever know it. So that's what I want you to do. I want you to write a character who mixes freely from your memory, your imagination, your observations and questions about your world. I'd like that character to inspire a short story. Maybe you're in their head, maybe you're looking at them from across the road. Have fun, because that's how we finish a draft. To visit the Writer's Gym in real time, visit rachelknightley.com.